0: summer is here and we're as busy as ever at the dsr network our podcast schedule has expanded to include the dsr daily brief dsr foreign policy dsr politics the dsr spy show words matter foreign office with michael weiss next in foreign policy and the secret life of cookies to celebrate our expansion we're bringing you this special offer through the month of june membership is 50 percent off members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support.
1: Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. And speaking of Yahoo News, I am joined this week by my friend and partner in crime, James Rushton. Uh, he and I have been writing together for the better part of a year now, um, mostly, in fact, I would say almost exclusively on the war in Ukraine. And James, uh, as readers of our work would know, uh, lives in Kiev, where for the past month, Russia has conducted what I think is fair to call a reign of terror of missile strikes drone attacks on the ukrainian capital although rather hearteningly and perhaps even miraculously most of the incoming has been successfully intercepted by ukrainian air defense systems including the us-made patriot missile uh system that uh, arrived uh, several months ago uh james though and i have daily almost hourly conversations uh some of which have been interrupted by um Air raid sirens and, you know, the kind of, I would say, lingering fear of uh, what might befall. Uh, and I'm going to let him sort of describe the atmosphere in Kyiv. And also we're going to get into um, drone attacks uh, against Russia, Moscow region in particular, and the uh, what look to be the shaping exercises of the forthcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive. So, Jimmy, mate, good to have you on uh i mean i think as i've said before this show is essentially conversations i have with people i know um offline but simply taken online so so jimmy um can you tell us what the atmosphere is like in kyiv uh given what seemed to be like a nightly uh, barrage of of incoming attacks from russia
2: so uh the predominant atmosphere i think is is one of sleep deprivation um there isn't really fear, at least not as far as I can see. And, and generally the people that I interact with here, it's more kind of like resignation and the, the, the you know, the almost certainty that tonight will bring another air raid, more explosions, more interrupted sleep. Um, but there's also obviously the sense of determination and really there's the, the people here very much view the, the Russian actions as, almost like a, a temper tantrum, right? That they're, they're, they're lashing out in spite at Kyiv. They don't really have any ideas. They don't really know what they're doing. It's just a kind of impulsive, angry reaction to the actions of the Ukrainians. Um, and I think, as you alluded to earlier, the, the Ukraine is getting very, very good at knocking the vast majority of these mun- munitions out of the sky. Um, the city is probably the most heavily defended airspace Almost in the entire world now I would say um, so yeah the, the, it's it's <laughs> sleep deprivation uh, indignation quiet determination that you know this is not going to let you know people's support of the wars determination to resist the Russian aggression uh. Yeah, that, that's that's really the, what I would say. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm just looking at a statistic here from, I think it's the Ukrainian Air Force. And in the last month, so from May 1 to May 31st, there were 185 rockets and 381 drones launched at Ukraine. Um, that's kind of a, a shocking figure when you think about the, I mean, that this is month, what, 16 of the war? Uh, it's It's been an uptick um lately as you as you put it acting out in rage a a russian temper tantrum for the failure to really advance on the battlefield um but you know one of the perennial questions is at what point does russia run out of these systems right i mean we 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 keep hearing these estimations that well you know they're they're gonna there's a shortfall in caliber cruise missiles um you know they're they're supposed Wonderwaffe that we wrote about the Kinzhal, which really isn't, you know, even, even doesn't even measure up to its on paper specifications in terms of what it can achieve. Uh, how, how many, what's the stockpile, as, as best we know, of, of what Russia can continue to throw at Ukraine? I know that they're getting more Iranian drones all the time. But when it comes to missiles, are they going to run out? Or are these things still rolling off the factory line at pace?
2: So I, I think there's obviously there's two separate issues here: the drones, um, the Shahid one three sixes, which are incredibly cheap and very easy to manufacture, and the Russians are getting plentiful supplies of those from Iran. Um, and then there's the issue of the more sophisticated um, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles um, that the Russians produce themselves. Um, I would say they are they're definitely running low but there is a continuing production in russia which nobody knows exactly how many they can make i've heard estimates of about 20 caliber cruise missiles a month something like that but then they also produce you know kh 101 uh, air launch cruise missiles uh Kinsar hypersonic um in scare quotes uh air launch ballistic missiles and a number of other systems so it's it's really difficult to say. I would I, I would say that it's not really a question that they've they're ever going to run out. It's just a question of how many they can fire based on their continuing production. And there have been efforts underway to to stop them. You know to reduce their production because a lot of these precision guided Russian weapons rely almost wholly on imported. Uh, Western components. Um, and there have been efforts to stop these components getting into Russia, but the Russians can still buy them on the gray market from 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 you know from countries in, in the Gulf. Uh, there's some s- suggestion that they are importing some of these components via China as well. So they're never going to run out, but it's just a case of how many they can send based on their continuing production.
1: And is there also perhaps a strategy to this, which is they're trying to exhaust Ukraine's supply of, of air defense systems? Um, I mean, clearly, you know, every Patriot missile that's fired is another Patriot missile that has to be provided by a Western country. Uh, or, I mean, you know, what, what is what is the logic, if, if, if any, actually exists beyond just, uh, you know, this kind of terrorizing campaign here?
2: For sure. When you look at the the, the Shahid 136s, um, they are fired with the expectation that most of them will get shot down for sure. But looking at it in a simple case of economics, um, a Shahid 136 costs about $22,000 and the cheapest uh, surface air missile, uh, you know, a man-portable surface surface-to-air missile like a Stinger, supplied by the United States, costs about $80,000 to $100,000. Now, they're not shooting all of the Shahids down with surface air missiles. Uh, there are a lot of um, gun-based platforms in Ukraine from the German supplied Gepards to just a bunch of guys in a Hilux with a heavy machine gun mounted on the back that drive around Kyiv with lights and, 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 you know, attempt to shoot down these, these incoming drones. And they're quite successful at that. Actually, it, it's, it's, it's finding them really in the night sky, which is difficult when you, when you can find them, if, if you're a decent marksman, taking them down, isn't actually that difficult. And every night you can see when the Russian send Shahids at us, you can see the searchlights illuminating the night sky. It's kind of like something out of a World War II movie. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, so, so that there is there is a case of, of, of that, um, you know, trying to exhaust Ukrainian air defences. Um, I think there is a strategy to it. I mean, Russian decisions often look irrational, but they, are, they generally work under a set of assumptions. Even if those assumptions are false, it's not accurate to say that there is no, you know, rationale behind their actions. For example, they tried to hit, uh, the headquarters of GUR, Ukrainian military intelligence, um, in the daytime ballistic missile strike, uh, on the, uh, 30th of May, um, and they came very close. In fact, GUR was damaged, the GUR building was damaged, but I, I believe again, it was damaged by falling debris rather than, you know, a, an intact ballistic missile because. When a ballistic missile hits uh, a building of that size, the, the building is, is incredibly severely damaged. And there is damage to, to the, the Go building, the go headquarters, yeah. um, but not severe damage. On
1: this, on this issue of debris, um, we're going to move from light to dark. Uh, it seems that, that most of the, the, the damage and indeed the, the, the casualties or fatalities inflicted have been from falling debris. Uh, a week or two ago, there was this... A uh, claim that was reported by CNN that a Patriot missile system had been quote damaged in one of these Russian barrages, but as it turns out, uh, the damage was so minimal that the system was repaired within I think less than 24 hours. Um, you and I have a, a bead on what actually took place, which is that something, probably falling chunks of uh, either the missile that intercepted the incoming Russian rocket or the Russian rocket itself, had sliced. Uh, one of the cables attached to the Patriot launcher, but not severed the cable. And the Ukrainians managed to patch it up with duct tape before the Americans came in and replaced the cable entirely. So, I mean, to to even call it damage uh, is is perhaps stretching it. But then just the other day, the other night, um, a small child was killed from falling debris. And there seems to be now this uh, controversy or scandal uh, in Kyiv uh, targeting uh, Mayor Klitschko about the availability and accessibility of bomb shelters. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, are, are Ukrainians finding it difficult to go to safe places uh, during these these nightly attacks?
2: So I, I think there's, again, there's, there's two issues there. Firstly, uh, in terms of debris, um, yeah, obviously that's a big issue, especially when you're talking about uh, ballistic missiles because they, they travel so fast. That even if they're successfully intercepted there's still significant debris moving incredibly quickly and that's going to cause damage wherever it lands on the issue of the bomb shelters uh so yeah there is an absolutely uh, a scandal in ukrainian domestic politics now um they these two women and this young girl turn up to a bomb shelter in a clinic uh the bomb shelter was locked uh and when they were outside the bomb shelter uh, trying to get in, they were killed by the falling debris, and Klitschko has been the target of severe criticism here. Zelensky himself has criticised uh, Klitschko because of this. Um, it isn't actually difficult to find shelters here as long as you can you know, prepare in advance. Um, the metro, for example, um, opens its doors to residents that want to take shelter. Um, and honestly, considering that most of the missiles are intercepted, you are probably safer just remaining in your home, um, away from windows. Um, the, the guidelines is you need to have two walls between you and an external uh, an external wall to protect yourself against debris and blast. Um, but yeah, the, the part the problem in in the case the the sad case we referenced is that this was again an attack by ballistic missiles and they fly so fast that there was very little time for these people to get to a shelter. I mean, the shelter was closed, but you know, there was something like 10 minutes, nine minutes before the air raid alarm sounded and then the debris was falling. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's generally it's, you can find shelter relatively easily. Um, but, but yeah, when when the ballistic missiles are launched, it's, it is more difficult um, just, just because they, they, they fly so fast.
1: Oh, and speaking, you mentioned that the headquarters of GUR Ukrainian military intelligence, had been targeted. I mean, my working hypothesis would be that would be a form of retaliation against what was almost certainly a GUR organized or coordinated effort to launch this um, cross-border raid into Belgorod last week um, using... Russian paramilitary units. Uh, there was also another kind of knock on or sequel effort that happened what yesterday, although less dramatic. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what this represents? I mean, I've seen military analysts describe it as shaping exercises or a form of psychological warfare to um, demoralize and to terrorize uh Russian military units in advance of the forthcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive. There's been some scuttlebutt that the Russians have had to pull uh, assets and troops away from the the front in Ukraine to fortify uh, their 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 borders, um, you know, sort of north of Kharkiv. What's what's your read from Kiev about what's taking place now? Is this kind of a a full spectrum form of you know, instilling fear and paranoia in the enemy, um, because it does look, from what we're seeing on even bits and bobs in social media, and even uh, official statements coming from Ukrainian military and political figures, that the counteroffensive is going to take place probably within the next fortnight.
2: Yeah, so I I think you should view the uh, incursions across the Russian border less as a psychological operation and more as a diversionary tactic. it's clear that for the ukrainians forcing the russians to more seriously defend you know the huge swathe of border territory that they have with ukraine is is an incredibly beneficial thing for them because every russian trooper that is stationed along the border defending against a possible ukrainian incursion or a ukrainian uh, you know aligned incursion because all of the forces that have crossed the border so far have been Russians fighting on Ukraine's side. Um, it's it's one Russian soldier that can't be holding the line in Bakhmut or defending against a possible Ukrainian push down to the, you know, the Azov Sea and Zaporizhia. So I, I would say that that's clearly a diversionary tactic. Um, it, it, there is an element of psychological pressure that, that these raids exert as well. It shows really that the Russians can't you know expect to fight this war entirely on their own terms um the idea that they could enter a war and that they would invade another country but this other country would never touch them on their home turf always seemed incredibly naive um and it's proven so i mean the the the, the raid in moscow again with with the, the drone strikes in moscow was was another demonstration of that that this war has come home to russia and that regardless of what putin was claiming that this you know this special military operation as he calls it m- would make russia safer it manifestly hasn't because you've got clashes in russian territory you've got drones hitting targets in moscow you've got you know all of these things that you didn't have before um and, and yeah it's psychological pressure but also diversionary pressure and it's all part and parcel i think of of as you said the, you know the shaping operations in advance of this this Pending counteroffensive that the Ukrainians have been trailing for, for for quite a while now.
1: And what what's interesting is, and you and I are doing an article about this as we speak. Um, the Brits have been far more forward-footed in terms of not only security assistance, but their frankly unvarnished appraisal of you know what Ukraine. Can do what it ought to do and what it's more than um, entitled under international law to do. I mean, you had the British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly come out and say that they absolutely have every right to strike inside Russia. I mean, this is the nature of warfare. A defending country doesn't just have to fight on its own soil. I mean, you know, <laughs> the UK didn't didn't fight the 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 Luftwaffe and the Germans uh, simply in, in in the the British Isles. I mean, they took the war to europe Um, and yet the american response to these cross-border attacks and these drone attacks has been uh, somewhat more muted not to say condemnatory so you know washington says well we don't encourage or support these things but hey you know this is ukraine's war to fight where we we have no real agency or or say in the matter Um, is it fair to say i mean because we you know we could talk about the uk being the first to announce main battle tanks for ukraine the challenger twos Uh, The U.K. providing storm shadows, long-range cruise missiles that can target any position, any Russian position in occupied Ukraine, including all of Crimea, uh, which is – I just saw today, this morning, in fact, the U.K. Defense Secretary Ben Wallace saying uh, Crimea will be liberated before the end of the year, kind of a a, a four-column headline if ever I saw one. Um, What is going on with the Brits with respect to – are they being – I mean, is this just the natural British uh, electorate manifestation of of we want Ukraine to win? Or do, is there something else taking place here, which is that perhaps the Americans are using or allowing the Brits to act as this kind of vanguard position in, in terms of, of hawkishness on this war to take some of the pressure off the Biden administration for domestic political considerations, right? I mean, Americans are still broadly with Ukraine, but you have this very outspoken minority of the republican party that essentially wants to defund this war uh stop all security assistance or stop helping ukraine defend itself and yet the uk conservative and labor alike there's no daylight on this issue right i mean if keir starmer were elected tomorrow uh as or made prime minister tomorrow We would still expect them to be delivering storm shadows and all the rest of it what 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 do you make of this seeming disparity between the american and the british position on the war
2: so i think a lot of it has to do with domestic political pressure in america um it's clear that there is nowhere near the kind of universal support that there is in the uk um as you said in the uk the you know domestic political parties are entirely united behind ukraine from Labour Party, the opposition, Liberal Democrats, even the SNP, the Scottish National Party, which is typically you, you can't really find anything they agree with the Tories on or you know, or in, in Westminster, but they agree wholeheartedly on supporting Ukraine, arming Ukraine. So I think there's there's an element of um US domestic uh political consideration here. Obviously in the UK all political parties even the scottish national party which is almost always opposed to anything that comes out of westminster they are still entirely aligned on supporting ukraine in the states obviously we know that's not the case you have this vanguard of the republican party the the kind of q caucus as, as as people like to refer to them that are incredibly anti-ukraine um and even in the kind of more mainstream republican party you are seeing if not Anti-Ukraine, you're seeing kind of more conditions on what should be provided. Um, if not overt hostility, still kind of like you know we're supplying a lot. Maybe they should start talking about peace. Maybe she, you know maybe we should be clarifying our security assistance based on certain conditions. In the UK, there's there's no there's no sense of that at all. Everyone is is solely behind the Ukrainians. Uh, I think there's also some historical context here as well. Um, From the British Second World War experience, we really understand what it's like to fight um, against a a superior, aggressive country, essentially on our own. Um, I also think you have to look back at the run-up to the Second World War. The UK rightly came in under a lot of criticism for the policy of appeasement. And the idea that you can't you can't make concessions to someone like putin you know a dictator who is going to make more territorial concessions after territorial concessions are made so the idea that if we let him take ukraine or we don't support ukraine enough to resist him then he will go after someone else he'll go after poland he'll go after the lithuanian he'll go after the estonians he'll go after the latvians so i would say that there is you know historical context domestic political considerations um and you know the brits are very bullish when it comes to supplying weapons to ukraine when it comes to not really giving the ukrainians so many conditions over how they can use these weapons um as you mentioned there's you know international law absolutely does not prohibit a country that has been attacked from striking back that would be ridiculous and if you look at the historical context of you know wars that have been fought with these arbitrary red lines for example the how the americans tried to fight the vietnam war you know you had self-imposed red lines that the americans could not say bomb uh you know the the north vietnamese capital and that really you know that cramps the the the, the united states's performance in that war and and you know, you you can't expect the Ukrainians to fight a war with one hand tied behind their back. You you just can't. It's 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 obviously not going to end well. So, yeah, I I think there is you know there is truth to what you say, and and you have to remember the historical context as well.
1: And with respect to the 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 red lines that that may have once applied here, um, we're seeing now a kind of moving of the needle, if you like, on the American position. Um, we saw it already. Uh, in reporting that suggested that whereas previously the Biden administration thought Crimea was a no-go zone for the Ukrainians, now certain elements within the intelligence community and the Pentagon have warmed to the prospect that Ukraine uh, can and, and should uh, and would be successful in trying to recapture at least some of the peninsula. Um, there was a piece in the Washington Post just this week suggesting, you know, Putin has suffered from the boy who cried wolf problem, right? I mean, The Russians have said, "If you do X, we'll do Y," and then we do X, and Y does not come. Uh, And then they say, "Well, you know, if if you do Z, then it's World War III." And we do Z, and we're not even, you know, (laughs) one tick closer to World War Three. Already, we saw President Biden was asked by a reporter uh, the the perennial issue of providing attackums uh, long range munitions to the Ukrainians, which they've been begging for from. I mean, over a year now. Uh, and he said that that's still in play. That's that's still a, a contingency on the table. So it seems like the, the Americans are, are learning that Russia is uh, or has been up till now more bark than bite. And uh, this is, has been pretty galvanizing with respect to what, what the US and, and Western partners are, are able to provide. I mean, you and I wrote a piece about uh, F-16s, and how training up Ukrainian pilots who have the years of experience flying MiG-29s and Sukhoi-27s, it would only take about four months to get them, um, you know, kind of familiar and comfortable in in uh, American airframes. Um, this seems to be heading in what I would call the right direction, does it not? I mean, you know, America is is suddenly not as terrified of almighty Russia as it as it once was. And, and that includes, by the way, not just as of January, February, 2022, but decades and, and going back to the Cold War of assimilating Russian bluster, Russian propaganda about their own military capability and their own willingness to do something catastrophic, which it seems now that willingness has all but fallen by the wayside. I mean, we still worry a little bit about the use of nukes, but... The temperature has has lowered considerably in the past several months.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think we need to remember that, going back to your example of the Cold War, to Terence held throughout the Cold War, um, we had instances, if if we look at Vietnam, for example, the Soviet assistance to the North Vietnamese extended to supplying the uh, North Vietnamese with their latest surface to missile systems, and in some cases, Uh, Soviet military advisors were operating these systems and shooting down American aircraft. So, you know, we have history of, you know, fighting uh, or or not fighting but aiding countries fighting the other adversary during, you know, Cold War or a Cold War-like situation. And deterrence holds because both sides have nuclear weapons. So these Russian threats about using nuclear weapons I would say they're mainly for, especially if you look at Russian state media, they're mainly for internal consumption because, you know, it's just ridiculous. I mean, how many times have they talked about nuking London now? I can't even remember. And in, yeah. in London, everyone's right. just like, OK, well, that's very nice. Yes, you're talking about nuking us again. Well, we've got nuclear weapons, too. So, you know, it, it, it's it, these these threats, they are. Taken, if it was just one threat, if it was one threat in isolation, I would say take it seriously. But because it's this continuing pattern of nuclear threats, of, you know, yeah. it's it's far easier to ignore. And to be honest, the Russians have have really, you know, they've downgraded the credibility of their threats and they've made their threats far less threatening <laughs> because they've continued to make them. And it is uh, the boy who cried wolf. They they keep making them, and it gets to the point where they're just normal. So everyone just really treats them as if they are normal and not particularly threatening anymore.
1: And I mean, that's not to say that, you know, Putin couldn't w- wake up one day and decide, right, I've, I've, I'm strategically losing this war. And the only thing that will get the world's attention is for me to unleash WMD. Although, I mean, f- from everything I've read and, and everyone I've talked to, the use of a tactical nuke in Ukraine uh, only hurts Russia because it, it will sever Moscow's relationship with India and China perhaps not irrevocably but it will it would it would really badly deteriorate bilateral relations and worse than that for putin it's not going to lead to any tangible dividends on the battlefield right i mean it's 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 a terrorizing tactic but it's not going to make the russian army inch that much closer to 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 kyiv right
2: of course not no and i think the one thing you should remember is that nuclear weapons aren't magic they are essentially have been put onto this this kind of another level from conventional weapons because of you know the, the the radiation the fallout they they create but remember when they were first used in the second world war their effects were less deadly than conventional raids with fire bombs right the the, the firebomb in tokyo killed 110,000 people which is more than you know either hiroshima or nagasaki so you know they are incredibly frightening but militarily their utility is is quite frankly limited. If if you consider that you know that the, the one opportune moment for Putin to use a tactical nuclear weapon, I would say, would be to blunt the, you know, oncoming Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um because that's where you could possibly use a tactical nuclear weapon against a concentration of troops massing for uh you know the launch of their their, their offensive. But even then For all the reasons that you've just pointed out, it's incredibly risky because Putin doesn't know how the West would react to uh, the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. He doesn't know how China and India, well, he probably does actually know how the Chinese would react because I'm pretty sure the Chinese have told him, you know, in no uncertain times, this is a conflict that must not go nuclear because we do not want to end up in a nuclear war over Ukraine, because the Chinese really don't care about Ukraine one way or the other. They'd be happy if the Russians took Ukraine in a relatively short and bloodless war. Uh, They're probably quite happy that the Russians are getting bogged down in Ukraine and it's pushing Russia more towards them economically and making them more dependent on the Chinese and, you know, making making the Chinese able to sign sweetheart deals for raw resources from the Russians, I would guess. But they definitely don't want a nuclear conflict. And it's the same with the Indians. That the, the one thing that both these countries want to avoid is a nuclear conflict, because that gets very unpredictable very quickly. And it's the same for Putin. He doesn't know. Again, he doesn't know how NATO would react. He doesn't know how that, you know, how, how a nuclear conflict would be perceived inside Russia. And he's still vulnerable to internal pressure. Inside Russia, even though he is an autocrat, um, you know he he's not immune to, to to pressure from elites and from the Russian people. So yeah, I I don't you know, and I'm sitting in Kyiv, so I I have every reason to be you know hard nosed about this. I'm I'm not just saying it because I, I'm you know I I think that the, the possibility of of a the Russian using a nuclear weapon is very very low, not not totally non-existent, but very very low.
1: Well, then, also, I mean, a, a concerted Western response to the use of nukes in Ukraine might be to, I mean, not just allow Ukraine to conduct cross-border raids into Russian territory, but to facilitate them, right? And in that respect, what we've seen in the last few weeks in Belgorod is also a warning shot fired across Putin's bow that Ukrainians have reach; they, they can, they can essentially use strategic depth. To fuck up the russian spot in russian territory and that is hugely uh terrifying to to russia i mean you know striking the kremlin with a drone albeit you know just simply singeing the, the the dome of the thing and not doing any real structural damage um symbolically is huge um because russia has not been attacked within its own borders since world war ii uh and that that really i think puts Uh, the Russian leadership, not just Putin, but essentially his war cabinet on the back foot with respect to its own population. Yeah. So it, it, you know, the, the, the potential for retaliation and the potential for blowback is severe. And we've seen that it's been, that there's a demonstrated capacity to do these things already.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we, we, you know, we've talked about this before, but the Ukrainian military intelligence uh, GUR have got pretty pretty long reach and they've got reach which has been previously uh artificially constrained by western allies you know the americans in particular have not been happy that (laughs) good goes around um assassinating russians and, and blowing stuff up um but they do have this capability and you know budanov he's you know he's he's a smart guy and he's runs his agency the way he wants to run it and they are ruthless. I, I think someone I can't remember who it was that compared them to Mossad, but I I would say that that is that's 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 quite an astute observation, and I think that the Ukrainians will be looking at that that example of of the kind of the, the way the Mossad would again they they would, they wouldn't care about borders. They would go out and you know kidnap people you know Eichmann is this obviously the, the prime example render him back to Israel put him on trial they would go after the black September bombers uh ring leaders that, that were responsible for the, the the Munich massacre you know and and this is really the the kind of I think the philosophy that that the um that go is operating under and and it's 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 an understandable it's an understandable philosophy really because they view that well if if no one is going to give us justice. Um, if no one is going to, you know, stop, you know, the international system, the international community, the, you know, the, all of the, the 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 systems that are supposed to be put in place to stop this sort of regression happening, if that's not going to stop it, we're going to go out and get justice ourselves. And it's exactly the same philosophy I think that the Israelis had for many, many. Years.
1: Well, and that's that's another interesting angle, isn't it? I mean, the war doesn't end when the war ends because the Ukrainians will probably. Look to render war criminals, whether they're in Russia or some, you know, Middle Eastern dictatorship, or perhaps in 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 the Asia Pacific, uh, they'll look to kidnap them and bring them back and put them on trial, as as the Israelis did, um, well into the what the the fifties and sixties. So, I mean, this is this is another element I think of this that. You know we are seeing a 20th 20th century conflict play out in the 21st century and people have to kind of cognitively prepare themselves for the long-term repercussions of that both militarily but also in the kind of shadow realm of espionage and covert operations
2: yeah absolutely and i think another thing we've seen in ukraine is that there are multiple different uh power centers um you have um Gur, which is you know it, it I believe, um, speaking to people here, and I mean, you probably correct me on this, but I, I believe GUR has been given quite a bit of strategic autonomy. Um, you have private actors. Um, for example, um, You know the, the, the Nord Stream 2 bombing, which was almost certainly carried out by agents uh, acting for the Ukrainians, um, not for the Ukrainian state, but for Ukrainians um and there is this kind of um there's this kind of attitude that you know we all have to resist and again we're not going to be you know we've been fighting these guys we've been fighting the russians for for centuries they've tr- they've tried to kill us they've tried to starve us into submission they've tried to repress our language they've tried to you know destroy the very idea of a ukraine existing and you know we're not going to be constrained by you know, the kind of niceties of of international (laughs) relations, especially when it has done nothing to prevent Russia from their, you know, their aggressive actions.
1: And I mean, you know, another element as well is going to be what the Ukrainians will be teaching NATO militaries and NATO intelligence organs for years, if not decades to come about how to counterman Russian malign activities and, and, I mean, military threats really. Uh, which is yet another argument for ukraine's eventual accession to nato um so listen you know we we spend a lot i mean we wake up and go to sleep thinking about ukraine obviously you live there you have a life there you have friends um you know is is, i remember chatting with you several months ago when it certainly looked like bakhmut was going to fall but fall in the manner in which the Russians had originally envisaged, which would be an encirclement uh, and a sort of a, a grand victorious pageantry about the, the taking of this town in Donetsk of what used to be 70,000 people. Bakhmut has fallen, but it was a very anticlimactic affair. Um, and even though, you know, they pressed, the, the Russians, mostly Wagner operatives, pressed, pressed in into the city center, On the northern and southern flanks, the Ukrainians have been mounting tactical counteroffensive operations that have regained, I don't know what the the square kilometer um, terrain is now. But Bakhmut is not really the victory the Russians had anticipated. And I'm, I'm noticing now in the Western press, which had been very, very skeptical of Ukraine's decision to stand and fight for this scruffy little town, Uh, that there's been a kind of sea change in that, okay, well, we don't know how many Ukrainian lives were were squandered in this operation, but uh, just yesterday, the New York Times, quoting a a Western official, suggested that 20,000 Russians were killed and another 40,000 wounded. And of that 40,000 wounded, we can anticipate a good percentage of them, if not most of them, ended up succumbing to their wounds because medical intervention is almost non-existent on the Russian side. That's pretty dire for Russia. Uh, And that that seems to suggest that, um, I mean, it'll be difficult to know exactly how Bakhmut factors into whatever the Ukrainians have got up their sleeve in the next few weeks. But taking off the chessboard, what, at least 60,000 Russian fighters, uh, whether they're guns for hire or conventional uh, military assets. That seems to be an accomplishment for the Ukrainians. Uh, ha- has the mood in Ukraine about Bakhmut and, and sort of the general optimism or or sense of um, will, has it shifted as a result of, of developments in the last several weeks? Or are we still in a, a place where a lot of Ukrainians think this was folly? They're demoralized or very skeptical of what the general staff is, has got cooking. Um Tell us a little bit about the kind of sentiment that you're, you're experiencing.
2: So I think there are very much two schools of thought. Um, firstly, you're right that the, the Russian victory, if, if you want to call it a victory, because, I mean, it's a Pyrrhic victory at best in Bakhmut, has come at extreme cost. Um, I'm pretty sure Pogoshin said that it was 20,000 Wagner Fighters alone who who died in in, in Bakhmut, uh, you know he might be exaggerating because you know he might be exaggerating just to 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 kind of sell the sacrifice that Wagner has made. Um, so so you know he might be not telling the truth there. But even if it's just twenty thousand across Wagner and the you know the regular Russian Ministry of Defense forces, it's it's still a huge you know amount of their combat power which they have exerted to and uh, expended to to take this this city which is like you said it's it's pretty much entirely strategically insignificant and it was only really it was given significance by both sides a symbolic significance beyond you know all, all realistic realistic strategic significance and I, and i think the ukraine the ukrainians have, have kind of understood that now they are the, the, the very much anticipating the counteroffensive, I think there is there's still a very much a mood here that they they feel they're going to win the war. They've always felt they're going to win the war. They feel that their you know the sacrifice of a lot of the ZSU in holding back the Russians in Bakhmut has has given you know the, the the forces that preparing for the counteroffensive and there's you know something like twelve brigades that are are being uh, stepped up and given the latest Western kit and training time to, to, you know, to, to train, to prepare and yeah, I mean, it's a sacrifice uh, for sure. And there, you know, until we know the actual casualty ratios, it will be very difficult to know for certain, you know, what price was paid, what price was paid by the Ukrainians to exact this, this, you know, toll on the Russian military. But, you know, having said that the Russians now. Have got a force which looks pretty much incapable of taking significant offensive actions i mean they can take maybe they can you know they can advance locally uh opportunistically but they're not capable of any sort of large-scale offensive as as we believe the ukrainians are as the ukrainians almost certainly are um they don't have this reserve of of force waiting behind the lines um so yeah you know if if, if you have to look at backwards and say well which side won um well for, for the Ukrainians, there was one of their strategic goals was achieved, which was to wear down the Russians to bleed them dry for a city that really is not that important in the grand scheme of things um for the Russians, okay, maybe it's a symbolic victory, and yeah, they had their day of crowing about that they'd taken that they'd taken north, but They've got a, a city which has been reduced to rubble, with pretty much nobody living in it. That's of almost zero strategic significance. So, really, the price they pay for that is is astronomical.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm. We're both talking to people who are eager with anticipation to see how this Ukrainian campaign plays out. Um, but one of the things that that we're not seeing perhaps in as much in American media coverage of, of you know, in, in terms of forecasting, is the, um, the, the, the kind of quiet assumption that perhaps this is going to be a route. You know, in other words, the Russians are not going to be able to put up much of a fight, and despite their lines of trenches and dragon's teeth and, you know, fortified positions, we've all seen the maps. With the concentration of dots where they built up their their fortifications and so on, that in fact, given Ukraine's new kit, uh, given the training they've received, you know, twelve brigades from Western countries, but in total, I think something like twenty six brigades about to take part in 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 this offensive, um, you know, including one that has been secretly trained in Sweden, fully kitted out with Swedish armor and 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 weaponry. Uh, that that perhaps, you know, yet again, we are uh, anticipatorily underestimating Ukraine's potential. And that if this is a complete disaster for the Russians, it's going to dramatically alter the calculus in Western capitals with, with regards to any kind of future peace settlement or diplomatic uh, round of negotiations. In other words, maybe the Ukrainians can impose their own military solution on this conflict after all. Uh, I mean, I I don't like to be in the game of of making forecasts because I think it's a bit of a fool's errand. But what is your sense of, you know, is there a real possibility here that this could be um, another kind of shocker? Uh, In other words, another Kharkiv or if not, another Kherson for Ukraine?
2: I think the possibility is definitely there. I mean, if you look at at what everyone was saying before the Kharkiv counteroffensive, um, was that uh, defence has primacy, that it would be a grinding war of attrition, that manoeuvre was essentially over, that the Ukrainians could at best, you know, force the Russians to pull back you know, from, from Herson because, simply because it was on the wrong side of the Dnipro. And they really turned all of that on 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 its head because they, you know, they exploited strategic deception they they used you know the sort of tactics you know the armored cavalry tactics that that most people would would think you know would just get them all killed but they they made it work um and they they have this the ukrainians have this willingness to to kind of upend the rule book to, to take risks in a way that we've kind of i think we've forgotten um in, in Western militaries, I think partly that's because we've been fighting wars of choice and you're less likely to take, you know, these kind of risks. And again, you know, ball rushing, you know, (laughs) Russian positions in lightly armored Humvees is a risk. You know, it's, it's, you know, a a lot of the the equipment they, they use in Kharkiv was lightly armored fast, but you know, lightly armored and they you know, they, they took risks, they saw a chance, they, you know, they engineered that chance by deliberately hyping the, you know, that the offensive in here so on by forcing the Russians to deploy their best troops down there and denuding the Russian positions up, up in the north. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that there is the, the possibility that Ukraine's will pull something off that, that people just weren't expecting because they've done that consistently really from day one of this war, everyone thought. Well, not everyone, but a lot of people thought Russia would conquer Ukraine pretty quickly. Um, they didn't. You know, nobody thought that the Ukrainians could sink the Moskva with two domestically produced Neptune missiles. They did. Nobody thought they could go on the attack in ha- in in Kharkiv. They did. You know, it's it's a, a consistent uh, you know subversion of ex- expectations by the Ukrainians. And yeah, I, I think there's every possibility that they can do it again. They've got some very very good Western equipment. Um, you know and if if they do what you know most people expect them to do you know they'll they'll concentrate it on in in one part of the line they'll push through and the the russians you know that they, they don't have the the kind of reserves that you would really want when ex- expecting to face a, a you know an offensive you ideally you'd want uh, strategic reserve position behind the lines so you could react to um any potential breakthrough uh the russians don't seem to have that as, as far as i can see uh, or if they do it's very very limited uh, and the troops that they do have in 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 ukraine are tired uh they've been worn down for months and months of grueling fighting whereas the ukrainian troops that are, that are going to be deployed in this counteroffensive, kind offensive a lot of them are fresh they've got you know brand new equipment and um and they're incredibly highly motivated as well. I, I think people often forget that the Ukrainians are fighting for their country. The Russians, uh, you know, a lot of them are conscripts and they're not fighting for their country they they've been conscripted and they are in a foreign country where they have no business being, and you know, the Russians understand this, even if the, the, the kind of a lot of the, the bluster you see from the, the, the pro Russian telegram channels, you know, the, the, the military analysts it would be different if it was ukraine invading russia i think you would see the russians putting up far more spirited of a fight than than they are in ukraine for sure
1: all right james uh well listen mate stay safe um and yeah we still have a lot of work to do so I- i'll let you go um but it's been great to have your analysis of uh, the world gets to hear you the way i hear you on a daily basis so always a pleasure and uh, yeah, we will, we will have you back on when Ukraine once again defies expectations. Thank you very much. Of course. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Foreign Office. Um, my guest this week is James Rushton. He's a reporter for Yahoo News alongside my, my good self, uh, and he's been coming to you live from Kyiv. Uh, thanks very much for joining and we'll see you next week.